Advent is a season, it's a, it's a, it's a designated time on the Christian calendar that encourages us to get back in touch with our deepest longings. It's a time of identifying and naming things that, um, that you deem are worth waiting for and worth preparing for. Uh, some things, you know, if they happen, okay. If they don't, okay. But um, I like what Dave was encouraging us to do. What, what are the things that we really long for in the next five minutes, in the next week, in our lifetime? And uh, those are things that we're going to hold close to us and, and really allow ourselves to feel um, that deep desire, that yearning. So I want to talk about that today. It's just going to be a, we're going to read a passage of scripture. This is going to be pretty brief. Um, and, uh, but I want to, uh, want to say a couple of things just to kind of set up this passage in Psalm 85. In fact, if you've got a Bible on hand, uh, go ahead and open up to Psalm 85. Um, to use the language of religion or church, uh, if you're familiar with that, um, I am saved. I can use that word saved in the context of religion and church. And, um, but I can also, in, in the language of my soul, say that I long for salvation. So I am saved, like I have been, past tense, but I long for salvation. And that, that might seem confusing, but, um, but according to the, to the Bible, I am saved. I didn't earn my salvation. I have received it by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. But according to my soul and the Bible, I long to be saved. I long to be saved from all that keeps me tethered to only what this world has to offer. That first song that we, that we sang that Jane led us in was just a great, it opened up with that, um, that there are just some desires that this world can't satisfy. Um, I long to be saved to a life of deep meaning and exuberant moments of fulfillment to ecstatic feelings of joy. I long to be saved to hope that has no ceiling, to divine satisfaction, to supernatural clarity, to boundless creativity, to unshakable courage. I long to be saved to a life and experience of complete wholeness. I long to be saved to an existence in which justice is the norm, Truth is undisputed, and all of creation is restored to God's original garden settings. The writer of, of Psalm 85 begins by saying that he and the nation of Israel, they have been saved, past tense, but they cry out in faith to the God who turned to them in grace, and um, they long to still be saved, future tense. The salvation that the psalmist longs for, he goes on to describe in four words. And when those four words begin to appear in our life, we know that salvation is on the near horizon. So I'm going to ask you again to think about what is it that you long for? I mean, really deep down long for. Um, back, back in March, 
we would have paid crazy money for a roll of toilet paper, wouldn't we? I mean, that was, we kind of said that's what we long for. Um, I, I just noticed this the other day. Um, in all of our longing for toilet paper, I had no idea that the light in this room, it looks like it's made of toilet paper. Is that, <laughs> is that the funniest thing or what? It's like I have glowing, glowing um, rolls of toilet paper over my head. Um, what are the things that we long for? Well, I, we, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, talking about things more than that. I remember in June um, when I wanted a simple haircut. These aren't the things that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm asking you um, to get in touch with those deep longings, the ones that are often the, maybe the first thing that you think about in the morning, or maybe it's what keeps you up at night, imagining and wishing and hoping because these types of longings overshadow the lesser wants and desires that we have. Thomas Merton um, said this, and this is a, a quote um, you may already be familiar with. I'm going to put it in the chat feature because I think it's worth kind of dwelling on, <laughs> um, maybe even writing down. Thomas Merton, in talking about um, what he hopes for in life, said, Ask me not where I live or what I like to eat. Ask me what I am living for and what I think is keeping me from living fully that. He knows that there is something greater and higher and he wants to arrange his life around that. So you look at the life you're living and the state of the world around you and you long for something more. It's, and it's often have you noticed this? It's, it's when we're exhausted from trying to change everything ourselves that we begin to look for a savior, someone or something to rescue us from a disappointing life that we're living, or a savior, someone or something to save us to the life we long for in the world that we long to live in. So there's a, a sense that we're saved from and also saved Two, and I, I think a problem that I often see is that we turn to Christ to be saved from a life we have grown weary of. But for some strange reason, we, we can be tempted to turn to other saviors to save us to something that we hope will bring lasting satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, whether, whether that's the case for you, I know that everyone longs for salvation, some type of rescue. So the question is, who or what will we turn to for salvation? Everyone has a life they want to be rescued from. That's common for all of us. And whether you've really given it a lot of thought or not, um, each of us has an idea of the life that we want to be rescued to. And in Jesus, we find a Savior who can check all of the boxes, so to speak. Well, what are those boxes? Well, we're going to read about them in Psalm 85. Um, and this is not something that you just kind of want to settle for checking off one box or even three out of four. Um, we're going to look at what these four things are and how we find them in Christ. So uh, let's look at these passages, this passage in Psalm 85, uh, at these four characteristics of a Savior who satisfies our deep longings. But before we do, um, let's pray. Father, I confess that throughout the week, 
there are times when I find myself pining for a small s savior. I pray that uh, just in this time and even again in the reading of this passage that you will do a work in me that, that pulls me towards you as my one true Savior with a capital S, Savior. You are our hope for the life that we long for. Speak to us in these brief moments in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, I'm not going to read all the verses of Psalm 85. Um, it says, You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. In other words, the psalmist is saying that there was a salvation past tense. And he is giving glory to the Lord for that. You showed favor us. You restored us. You forgave us. You covered over our sins. We have been saved. Then he talks about this salvation future that he longs for. Uh, beginning in verse 8. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. Again, it's this forward look. It's a promise. Um, he promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. This salvation, future tense, maybe isn't as far away as what we thought. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. And then listen to this in verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. You know, um, there have been times this year where I've been hoping that things could get just a little bit better. I can't count the number of times that I've just prayed, God, can you just kind of give us a break? Just, just give us a break, send a little goodness and relief our way. But what this psalm does here. It does not make a small request of, God, just give us a little break. This psalm expresses a dream for the day when the earth and all of us in it will be fully restored to how God originally intended it. It hopes in the day when everything works the way God intended for creation to work. And Advent is this time where we pay attention. We wait with expectancy. And this psalm reminds us to hope big and to set our expectations high. And I, I say that, but at the same time, I know, man, that's a big risk, isn't it? It's a big risk to say, I'm going to really put myself out there and I'm going to hope big. Because in all of our own ways, we've, we've experienced disappointments in life. The life that we long for is a life deeply rooted in the key aspects that are highlighted in this psalm, uh, particularly in verse 10. And I just want to touch on these four words. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. 
Now, the way these are described to us, I want, I want this is more than mere poetry, although can we just agree that's just such a, a beautiful way of describing it. Um, but these are really wise and deep truths here. And so uh, I want to make sure we understand these four words. And then why would the psalmist pair them as they are? Why love and faithfulness together? And why righteousness and peace together? Uh, this word for love, um, in some translations, it is steadfast love. It's that Hebrew word hesed. Remember a few weeks ago, we read about this in Psalm 100. It's translated as steadfast love, loving kindness. It's rich with meaning, and it's, it describes an endearing attachment. It's a picture of attachment. Love and faithfulness meet. They come together, and they are attached. And then the following phrase, righteousness and peace, kiss. They, too, are attached. They're fastened together. So, uh, so we have love, this steadfast love. Faithfulness um, is pretty, pretty straightforward. It could also be thought of as truth. Um, a consistent display of truth. This word righteousness, I, I want to help us understand this a little bit. Uh, righteousness is something that we may first associate with morality, even almost like a proud morality, um, a righteous person. Uh, but righteousness originally was a way to describe right relationships. And so a word that better describes righteousness is our word for justice. Um, when we experience justice, there are right relationships. The relationships are as they should be. Um, peace, this is a beautiful word, shalom. And it's so much more than um, the absence of war or fighting, or finally circumstances are going my way and I'm at peace. It describes the fullest life, a life of wholeness everything coming together and relating as it should. So let's put these pairings together. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet together. Steadfast love is not that mere emotion or passing passion. Steadfast love pairs with, it meets with faithfulness. In other words, steadfast love involves a conscious decision rooted in truth and the strength of faithfulness. It's not just saying, well, I hope these feelings last long enough. No, it's attached to the faithfulness, to unchanging truth. And in turn, faithfulness is not just simply a dogged determination to remain loyal in a relationship, but it's a commitment that's nourished and fed by love. It's like a flame that's stoked and fanned. So steadfast love is what lends vibrancy to faithfulness. And faithfulness adds that tenacity and that endurance to love. Our deepest longings, the salvation that we long for, is rooted in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Again, peace is that fulfillment. Uh, it's a life of wholeness and righteousness, again, is what we commonly think of as justice. So how do these two go together? Well, peace is always evidenced in relationships. Wholeness. When you experience wholeness, it, it's evidenced in the way that you interact with other people. So there really is no peace, no shalom, 
without justice. And in turn, justice is more than just legal fairness. It needs the bigger picture of God's shalom. So like, I think of it as shalom is the picture on the box top of a puzzle and the many pieces and facets of justice come together in wholeness. They become a picture of shalom. So salvation is so much more than agreeing to a set of beliefs or even believing in Jesus Christ. Salvation is embodying what Jesus embodied when he walked this earth. Salvation is near when steadfast love and faithfulness meet in our homes. Salvation is near when peace and justice kiss in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and throughout our country. When we work for justice, we are spreading God's shalom on earth. When our love, our steadfast love, is paired with faithfulness, that's when our neighbors will note a vibrancy and a fullness in the way we go about love and the way we go about life. And then I want to go back to verse 9. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. And what I want us to see is um, that word land is mentioned three times in this psalm as it pertains to salvation. The Lord showed favor to the land. That's in verse 1. Verse 9 that I just read, salvation includes God's glory dwelling throughout his creation, throughout land. And then in verse 12, the land will yield its harvest. So when we talk about salvation, this is not just something that I'm thinking about for me and my eternal destiny. It's not just salvation so that I can experience my own personal fulfillment in life. God's salvation includes everything and everyone around me, including the land. God's blessings will be on the earth. And it says that we will see God's glory displayed throughout the earth. This is something that I think touches on a deep longing that we have. We want to see God's glory displayed in everything. I'm reading a book that references John Muir's love affair with nature. I'm sure so many of you are, are familiar with um, who he is and how he devoted his life to God's creation, um, to the care of it, to, um, uh, to, the, to saving it in so many ways. Uh, John Muir kept a diary that has been nicknamed the soul on fire. And his passion and exuberance were indeed a soul on fire. When, when Mir was 30 years old, he saw Yosemite for the first time. Um, I got to see it for the first time just a, a few short years ago. Um, you know uh, that that's one of those things that you remember the first time you saw um, El Capitan, the first time you walked into Yosemite, and you probably remember every time since. Um, this is what John Muir wrote in his journal after seeing Yosemite for the first time. Everything was glowing with heaven's unquenchable enthusiasm. I tremble with excitement in the dawn of these glorious mountain sublimities, 
but I can only gaze and wonder. And then he goes on to describe that he watches the sun come up between the mountain peaks and over the rock domes of Yosemite. And then he proclaims what he experienced in this way. Our camp grove fills and thrills with the glorious light. Everything awakening, alert, and joyful. Every pulse beats high. Every cell life rejoices. The very rocks seem to thrill with life. The whole landscape glows like a human face in a glory of enthusiasm. What if, what if the salvation that we long for and the life that we long for and the one that we encounter stirs us like it did John Muir? Stirs us to the point that our souls are on fire. And this Advent season, I remember more than that is uh, more than what it is to wait. This is a season when I pause to remember what it is I'm really waiting for. I am waiting for something that sets my soul on fire. I am waiting for something that is nothing shy of the glory of God being known all throughout creation. And I know that glory includes steadfast love and realizing that no other love will satisfy other than the love of Christ. It includes faithfulness. Anything less than eternal is not enough. It includes justice. God's idea for justice always precedes the words for all. And peace, shalom, more than the absence of conflict, it's a fullness of life. God's shalom permeating me and spreading infectiously to all of life around me. So here's the action step that I want you to take before we, um, before we sing this closing song, this carol. I encourage you this week to pray a prayer of self-examination. And very simply, this could be your prayer. Lord, show me that unproductive way in me and give me the courage to express my highest hopes. Let me say that again. Lord, show me that unproductive way in me. In other words, it's, it's what Thomas Merton was talking about. I know what I'm living for, but if there's, if there's something that you see me doing that doesn't align with what my heart really is longing for, Call it to my attention. Show me that unproductive way in me and give me the courage to express my highest hopes. I know we are, oh, dang, we are in a really tough spot in so many ways in our society and in our culture with what's going on in our country and around the world. But we cannot let that keep us from expressing our highest hopes. In fact, maybe, just maybe, we will see God's glory expressed even in the midst of what we are going through. Lord, show me that unproductive way and give me the courage to express my highest hopes to see your glory made known throughout the earth. Amen.